0: In the early 1400s, being a scribe is a prestigious job. Highly skilled monks work in a special room called a scriptorium, where they spend their days copying religious texts. But in 1440, the German blacksmith and inventor Johannes Gutenberg invents the printing press. Some of the monks lose their jobs, but others corner the market on high-end books. And all sorts of new jobs are created as print shops open and more books are sold. It's a similar story in 1785, after the Englishman Edmund Cartwright invented the mechanical loom. It's bad news for hand weavers, at least at first. But by 1850, there are 260,000 power looms in England, and people are needed to build them, operate them, and repair them. In the American folk song, The Ballad of John Henry, a 19th century railroad worker claims he can drive spikes faster than a newly invented mechanical steam drill. Henry goes head-to-head against the machine and he wins. But the effort kills him, and the steam drill goes on to power the expansion of the railroads, which spawn new towns and businesses where people like John Henry, for the most part, find work. In 1892, an inventor in Iowa named John Froelich test the first gasoline-powered tractor. At the time, about 40% of Americans are farmers. 100 years later, less than 2% are, and machines handle most of the work. In the 1980s, word processors replaced typists. About the same time, robots start taking their place on assembly lines, elbowing out welders in automobile plants in Detroit. In the 1990s, Amazon replaces booksellers across America. Today, computers are replacing lawyers and accountants and radiologists and even journalists writing the news. Pretty soon, trucks will be driving themselves. And podcasts like this won't need people like me. For hundreds of years, human workers have been replaced by machines that do the same things better, faster, and more cheaply. And in most cases, more new jobs have been created than lost. It's the march of progress. But entrepreneur and U.S. presidential candidate Andrew Yang says those days are over. He says we're on the cusp of a revolution that's unlike anything we've ever seen. Automation is going to replace millions of us, and there won't be nearly enough new jobs to make up for it. Yang says the march of progress is more like a march into war. But he has a big idea for how to keep that war from becoming a bloodbath.
1: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.
0: From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. I founded The Next Big Idea Club, along with the authors Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant, to connect people to some of the boldest new thinking shaping our culture and our future. Each week on the podcast, we bring you one idea with the power to change the way you see the world. This week, girding for a techno-apocalypse, which may be here sooner than you think. That's the challenge Andrew Yang tackles in his book, The War Against Normal People, the truth about America's disappearing jobs and why universal basic income is our future. Yang is the son of two scientists who emigrated to the U.S. from Taiwan. He trained as a lawyer and got a job at a corporate firm. After five months, he and a coworker quit to start a website for philanthropic fundraising. It went bust with the dot-com bubble. But entrepreneurship suited Yang better than corporate law. He spent three years as the vice president of a healthcare startup, and then a decade running a highly successful test prep company. He was ready to start another business, but something nagged at him. Tech entrepreneurs seem to be concentrated in a few places, like the Bay Area, Seattle, Boston, and New York while most of the country was left out. So he founded a nonprofit called Venture for America, with a mission to train young entrepreneurs in places like Cincinnati and New Orleans and Detroit. Now the program is in 20 cities and it's helped launch hundreds of companies. In 2017, Yang stepped down from Venture for America to run for president. He was convinced that the country is on the verge of a momentous and potentially disastrous transformation and that we're not ready. At the top of his list of proposals is UBI, Universal Basic Income, or what he calls the Freedom Dividend. It's a no-questions-asked $1,000 a month payment to every adult in America. Now, don't mistake this episode for an endorsement. The Next Big Idea is not a partisan podcast, it's a show about bold ideas. And Yang's idea about UBI is about as bold as they come. We talked in front of a live audience at BetaWorks Studios in New York City. Andrew Yang, thank you for being our guest on the Next Big Idea podcast.
2: Thanks for having me, Rufus, it's a pleasure.
0: First of all, I wanna say congratulations. You have been busy since I saw you last which I want to say was like six, seven, eight years ago, you were, you were building Venture for America. Since then, you've written two books, created a few thousand jobs, and now you're running for president. And uh, you seem to be not only doing important work, but having a pretty good time. That's my impression.
2: Well, if you're going to run for president as the outsider entrepreneur, you better freaking enjoy it, I think.
0: <laughs> I think an effective place to start would be to scare the heck out of people.
2: What you're good at doing... I'm a very scary individual, that's true.
0: (laughs) Your book, The War on Normal People, contains an extraordinary admixture of dire pessimism on the one hand. I mean, really dark, dystopian vision for what is happening to us and what could happen to us. And on the other hand, beautiful, I mean, angels singing Vision for what's possible.
2: You have to get to the end, though.
0: <laughs> you do have to get to. The end. Well, and, and, and to that effect, you had, you had a friend who described reading your book as like getting punched in the face repeatedly. And he clearly did not make it to the second half. Um, but I'd like to open this up to invite you, Andrew, to punch us in the face. How bad is our current situation?
2: I spent seven years running a nonprofit that I'd started, Venture for America, and. I was blown away by the gulf between different regions in this country where you feel like you're crossing dimensions or decades or ways of life if you travel between St. Louis and San Francisco or Michigan and Manhattan. And I wrote the book in large part to try and figure out why my unease was so high, particularly after Donald Trump won. If you turn on cable news, you would think Donald Trump is our president today because of some mixture of Russia, Hillary Clinton, emails, Facebook, FBI, some some cocktail. But I'm a numbers guy, and when I looked at the numbers, it was clear to me that we'd blasted away four million manufacturing jobs over the last number of years, and those jobs were primarily based in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Missouri, Iowa, all these, if that list of states sounds familiar, those are the swing states that Donald Trump won And what we did to those manufacturing jobs, we are now doing to retail jobs, call center jobs, fast food jobs, eventually trucking jobs, and on and on through the economy. We're in the midst of the greatest economic transformation in our country's history, the fourth industrial revolution. And Donald Trump is a symptom or a manifestation of the fact that we're in the third inning of this transformation and doing nothing about it. And if you doubt that this is already transforming America's way of life, as we're sitting here today, our labor force participation rate is down to a multi-decade low, about 63%, the same levels as El Salvador and Costa Rica for international comparables. And our life expectancy has declined for the last three years in a row because suicides and drug overdoses have both overtaken vehicle deaths for the first time in American history. It is highly unusual for the life expectancy in a developed country to decline one year, let alone three years in a row. The last time it happened in the US was 100 years ago during the Spanish flu of 1918, a global pandemic that killed millions. So we're back in pandemic territory in terms of its impact on US life expectancy. These problems drove Donald Trump into the White House, and they're going to get worse as 30% of the stores and malls close, AI starts assuming the work of call center workers and truck drivers and on and on. Is that scary?
0: That's pretty no, scary. I think that's at least a left hook, you know, and uh, in terms of the face punching. The um, So we should not be reassured that the unemployment rate is at a historic low of 3.5%. You would say that is unrepresentative of the reality.
2: Well, we have three headline measurements to see how we're doing in America today. GDP, stock market prices, and the headline unemployment rate. And each of these is somewhere between problematic and disastrous in practice. GDP is at record highs, even as life expectancy is declining. And something like self-driving trucks will be tremendous for GDP, save $168 billion a year in various expenses. But it's going to be disastrous for some of the 3.5 million truckers or the 7 million Americans who work in truck stops, motels, and diners around the country. Stock market prices, the bottom 80% of Americans own 8% of stock market wealth, and the bottom 50% own essentially zero. So if you're trumpeting stock market prices, you're tracking the fortunes of the top 20% of the country. And headline unemployment, to your point, Rufus, if you drop out of the workforce and you get discouraged, it actually improves the unemployment rate. The headline unemployment rate doesn't take into account labor force participation, which I mentioned. It also doesn't take into account the fact that 94% of new jobs are temp gig or contract jobs that don't have healthcare benefits or a path forward in many cases. It doesn't account for the fact that 40 to 44% of recent college grads are doing a job that doesn't require a degree None of those things shows up in the headline unemployment rate. It's almost intentionally uh, obscuring a lot of the ugly reality. So we need to upgrade to measurements that actually tell us how we're doing. You can't solve a problem if you can't see it.
0: And so let's, let's talk about what's coming. I think you call it the great displacement. How many tens of millions of people do you think will be
2: displaced in what amount of time? So let me ask you all, what percentage of Americans graduate from college? right, Uh, 42% if you were to include two-year degrees. So if you look up at the American workforce, you're looking at majority high school grads. What jobs do high school grads fill in our economy? And the top five, number one is office and administrative, including call centers, retail and sales, so those are all the mall workers and the cashiers. Food service and food prep is number three truck driving and transportation is number four, and manufacturing is number five. Those are the five big employment categories. That they're not the five biggest employment categories of high school grads in America. Those are the five biggest employment categories, period. So what percentage of Americans work in one of those five job categories? About half. You're looking about half of Americans are in one of those five jobs. And if you look at each of them in turn, administrative and uh, office-related work There are 2.5 million call center workers in the US making $14 an hour. How long do we think it's going to be before AI and software can do a lot of that job? Let's call it two or three years. I think it is technically feasible right now, because you don't need artificial general intelligence to replace a call center worker. You just need a really good decision tree and a bunch of voice prompts. Retail and sales, 30% of America's stores and malls are closing right now because of Amazon. Amazon's soaking up $20 billion in business a year and paying zero in taxes, the average retail worker is a 39-year-old woman making between 9 and $10 an hour. So when her store or mall closes, what's her next move? How many of you have seen a self-serve kiosk in a McDonald's or fast food restaurant? McDonald's says they'll be in every location in the U.S. in the next two years. Uh, and then they're going to start looking at the back of the house. They're going to start working on the robot uh, burger flippers and fry cookers. And truck driving, I mentioned it, it's the most common job in 29 states. When we get to autonomous vehicles that displace a significant number of truckers, it's going to be hugely problematic for many, many communities. And manufacturing is still clinging to the number five spot. Uh, We blasted away four million manufacturing jobs, and I can attest to the fact that if you go to Detroit or northeast Ohio or these other communities, they have not recovered in a meaningful way. Detroit... I love Detroit, I have a lot of friends there. Uh, Detroit had a peak population of 1.7 million people. Now it has a population of 680,000. So it's a city that's essentially two-thirds abandoned. So if you look one direction, you can see a thriving neighborhood, and then if you turn 90 degrees, you can see desolation and derelict buildings. Uh, And that's the aftermath of when jobs desert a community.
0: How about the highly skilled jobs, right? Doctors, lawyers, accountants, Podcasters.
2: I was a corporate attorney for five months, which is long enough to know that you can automate a lot of that job. AI can already edit contracts more quickly and cheaply than the most experienced human lawyer. If you look at the types of jobs that are in danger, it's repetitive manual or repetitive cognitive. Uh, and this is about 40% of jobs. So it's not a blue-collar, white-collar thing, though I just went through the blue-collar. If you look at the white-collar jobs, bookkeepers are already shrinking in the U.S. Uh, accounting is starting to feel the pinch. Insurance agents, who are ordinarily white-collar, also shrinking very quickly. Up to 30% of the insurance workforce could potentially be automated away. At the high-end, radiologists... You can't find a med student who wants to specialize in radiology anymore because they know that stuff's going to get eaten up by software that can see shades of gray on a film that the human eye cannot and can reference many more data points. Pharmacists, a lot of that is monitoring various interactions uh, and sorting through data patterns. So one of the fundamental arguments of my campaign is that the robot truck doesn't care if you are a really hardworking, conscientious trucker or not. And the same is true for the radiologist. You could be a very diligent, studious radiologist and the AI is going to do a better job than you. So we have to evolve as quickly as possible and say this is no longer like a like a us-them problem. It's really an everyone problem very quickly.
0: You know, we're talking about the economic problems, which are obviously very serious and traumatic. It, it strikes me that every bit as profound is the collapse of dignity that people are experiencing in many parts of the country. And you speak about this uh, very um, affectingly in the book. Um, Harari, the historian, had said in a conversation, it's one thing for a worker to be exploited, because when you're exploited, you can band together in a union and have some power. It's quite another thing to be rendered unnecessary. And it strikes me that this is a critical Piece of the story that there's kind of a psychological impact to this that we're seeing play out, right? Which you see reflected in, you know, suicide rates and what you call, I think, deaths of despair.
2: Yeah, work's about more than the money. Work is vital for providing structure, purpose, fulfillment, community, and idle men in particular struggle greatly with idleness where if you're an unemployed man, you volunteer less than, a, than an employed man, which, on the face of it, you're like, how the heck is that possible, given that you have a lot more time on your hands? Uh, substance abuse goes up, and various negative social indicators start to spike. So the question is, how do you create larger numbers of opportunities for unskilled men in particular, who are disproportionately being left behind? If you look at the manufacturing sector, you get rid of four million manufacturing jobs. About two-thirds of manufacturing workers were men. Uh, 94% of truck drivers are men. So you start thinking about this as like a male-oriented phenomenon. But if you dig a little deeper, you find that the next sectors that are going to be displaced in the highest numbers are actually filled by women. Uh, Like the administrative and office work, that's about 60% women. Retail is majority women. So if stores and malls close, it's going to impact women at higher levels the question is, how do we start creating more paths forward for people who, right now, are market-driven, capital-maximizing framework has no use for? And one of the well-meaning but, to me, very ill-founded ambition is to turn coal miners into coders. You know what I mean? It's like, what, your coal, your coal mines shut? Then I guess we're going to train you to become software engineers. Uh, and there there was like a bit of hype around that. I don't know if you all remember this. There was like a little effort, and then someone funded it to the tune of six figures. And then someone did a follow-up story, and guess what the follow-up found? No one became a coder. Like the, the graduates in the program were working at local retailers uh, waiting for the retail store to shut, essentially. So there's a lot of breathless hype around trying to make everyone market-efficient um, because we're also brainwashed to think that if the market attribute zero economic value to you, then you have no value, and then we have to move heaven and earth to somehow find another way to plug you into the machine. Uh, That mentality is going to destroy us. It's a loser. And if you dig into the actual social trends on the ground, you're more likely to find a disintegrating community than some community that has reinvented itself in such fundamental ways.
0: So whether you're a man or a woman, a doctor or a trucker, if you live in the country or the city, Automation could be coming for your job, and your life could be suddenly turned upside down. And old solutions like job retraining aren't as effective as we'd like them to be. So what's the way forward?
1: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA.
0: You can get a free copy of Andrew Yang's The War on Normal People when you join the Next Big Idea Club, the community of readers and writers that powers this podcast. The Next Big Idea Club is where curious people meet life-changing ideas. Just go to nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast and use promo code NORMAL. That's nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast, promo code NORMAL. It's a lovely spring day in 2026. It's an especially lovely day because it's the first day of the month and... Uncle Sam has just deposited $1,000 into your bank account. Why? Because three years ago, America adopted Universal Basic Income, or UBI. Every citizen over the age of 18 gets $1,000 a month, no strings attached. For you, UBI has been a lifeline. You were laid off last year after working the past two decades as a machinist. You were good at it, but then the machines learned to operate themselves and your skills weren't needed. It seems like overnight jobs for people like you just vanished. At first you were terrified, but not anymore because with that extra thousand a month, you're about to open your own business, a flower shop. They don't call UBI the freedom dividend for nothing. You and your spouse save yours to invest in your business. Your adult son used his to finally move out of your place and into his own apartment. Setting up the shop takes a little longer than you expected, but today is the grand opening, and everyone you know shows up. After all, they each have an extra thousand bucks a month, too, which means more money for flowers. Sound like a fantasy? Not for Andrew Yang. The Freedom Dividend is his big idea and the centerpiece of his presidential campaign. Well, it's not really his idea. People have been talking about UBI for centuries. Everyone from founding father Thomas Paine to conservative economist Milton Friedman to Martin Luther King speaking here in 1967.
1: Now, one of the answers, it seems to me, is a guaranteed uh annual income, a guaranteed minimum income for all people and for all families of our country.
0: Governments and charities have experimented with it in Finland and Canada and Kenya and other places. There's a small pilot project in Stockton, California. Alaska kind of has one in its permanent fund, which was set up by a Republican governor in 1976 and pays a lump sum to everyone in the state out of oil revenues, currently about $1,600 per person per year. In general, direct payments have worked pretty well, although no one has tried them on the scale Yang is proposing, and there are plenty of doubters. Yang says UBI won't make all of our troubles go away, but he says we have to do something, and this is a good place to start. But first, a little background. You know, I'd, I'd like to take a moment to, with your permission, get into a little personal stuff that you opened the book with. Because talking about the sort of, you know, your ability to empathize with uh, a large cross-section of the country uh, strikes me as something that may have driven some of your, your mission here. And folks who haven't read the book may be surprised to hear that Andrew describes in great detail this really brutal, kind of racially charged hazing that he uh, endured as a child with you know kids making fun of you. And you wrote, I've never forgotten what it felt like to be young, to be gnawed at by doubts and fears so deep that they inflict physical pain, a sense of nausea deep in your stomach, to feel like an alien, to be ignored or ridiculed. Which is quite affecting and, and, and beautifully written. Did this inform your focus on the disenfranchised? I, mean, I think I think you suggested that you've always related with the underdog throughout your life.
2: So what Rufus is describing is that I was one of the lone Asian kids in a uh, New York suburb, and I'd skipped a grade, so I was extra scrawny and extra nerdy. And uh, as a result, uh, I always felt like I uh, sticking up for the little guy uh, or marginalized person in a situation. And you have to ask, who's marginalized today in American life? You could make a case for, for different sets of people, but I, I don't think there's anything more fundamental than feeling like you or your community or your occupation has no place in the world. And I think that there's little more unsettling than having your community start to lose its economic vitality where you see every social indicator under the sun just start to plummet when, let's say, a factory town loses its factory. So I spent seven years trying to help create thousands of jobs around the Midwest and the South, and I was getting accolades for it. Like I got to bring my wife to meet President Obama a time or two, so my in-laws were really excited about me. Uh, But I had this, again, this sinking feeling. I was like, like my work's like pouring water into a bathtub that has a giant hole ripped in the bottom. Uh, And for whatever reason, we're not listening to the folks that are at the leading edge of a wave that is coming for more and more of us over time. You've also said that
0: at some point, we either solve these problems or invest in bulletproof glass to take our kids to school, right? I, I mean, you, you see this as a potential path to a social collapse if we don't
2: take action. Well, we already have record high levels of income inequality in the US. And there are a number of things that go hand in hand with record high inequality that even the people at the top are less happy in an unequal society. I I tend to look at other countries to see what the heck is going on. If you look at like the most unequal societies in the world, uh, unfortunately the patterns are pretty consistent and they're not the patterns you want. (laughs) They they include bodyguards for your kids and the the bulletproof car and what I I call it, the Guatemala package deal. Uh, You wanna try and avoid that if at all possible. Um, and we have the added complication of being the most heavily armed society in the history of the world. There are 300 million guns in this country, almost one for every man, woman and child. You already see record levels of drug uh, abuse and overdoses, suicides, mass shootings, and you have the most heavily armed population in the history of the world. Um, that's not exactly a recipe for like, gentle decline.
0: Many of your skeptics do point to the question of, it does seem like the question of the timetable is, is actually quite important, right? I mean, you've, you've said five, 10, 15 years, you know, it doesn't really matter, it's coming. And, and to me, that, that makes sense. But the difference between 10, 20, 30, 40 years is potentially the difference between the kind of, you know, uh, what we saw with the mechanization of agriculture, which was more of a smooth transition, versus something much more cataclysmic. Uh, I mean, do you think there's a, um, a reasonable argument that we may be overstating how, how quickly this is gonna happen?
2: The reason why the time frame does not strike me as, uh, as crucial a variable is that it's crystal clear to me, 100% clear, that we are not actually using our time to push ourselves in the right direction down this curve. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like, hey, we have all these Herculean efforts to reform our education system and, like, the mass retraining of these people, and if you just give us another five to ten years, everything will be copacetic. We're actually doing none of those things. Um, Most of what we're doing is praying to the market god, saying, oh, invisible hand, like, move the people from that town (laughs) to Seattle where they can find new jobs, and then... And then ignoring it. I mean, that, that, that's really what we're doing. And and if you look at the numbers, interstate migration rates in the United States are at multi-decade lows right now. Business formation rates, multi-decade lows in 80% of the country. So if you looked at it and said, okay, all of these incredible adjustments are taking place, and if we just have a slightly longer time frame, then we will cohere and get through this. I'd be like, yeah, I'd buy that if we're actually using our time in any of those ways. But it turns out, we're doing none of those things. And we're just putting our blind confidence and faith in the all seeing all knowing market to mind our society. And what I say to people is like, look, the market is excellent at doing what the market is designed to do. But the market is not designed to help unemployed cashiers or fast food workers or accountants or truck drivers. I've run businesses and organizations. I know what's beneficial to businesses and organizations. And it is not finding new jobs for 100,000 people that you just automated away. <laughs> like, like that, That's not what, what's going to help uh, my organization succeed. So the market is going to be excellent at pushing us in a particular direction. And we just have to acknowledge that that direction is going to leave many Americans behind.
0: Let's talk about the solution. Sometimes the next big idea is not in fact a new idea.
2: Universal basic income has been around for generations where Thomas Paine championed at the beginning of the country called it the citizen's dividend. Martin Luther King fought for it in the 60s, called it the guaranteed minimum income for all Americans and it is what he was fighting for when he was assassinated in 68. I had the privilege of sitting down with Martin Luther King's son and he said this was dad's vision. And I said, you just called Martin Luther King dad. And that makes sense because you are Martin Luther King III. All right, continuing. A 1,000 economists endorsed it in the 60s. It passed the US House of Representatives in 1971. Under Nixon, it was called a Family Assistance Plan. And one state has had a dividend in place for almost 40 years, where now everyone in Alaska gets between one and $2,000 in oil money every year. And what I'm saying to the American people is what oil is to Alaska, data, artificial intelligence, Autonomous vehicles, the Internet of Things, technology is to the American people. Uh, we can generate enough value broadly and quickly enough that we can actually have a dividend for all of us based upon data and technology.
0: So you're proposing 1000 bucks a month for everyone. And I've been talking to a lot of people in the last couple of weeks about this. And there are a lot of people who say, of course I like 1000 bucks a month but it just doesn't feel feasible, right? I mean, I think a lot of people have this sense that, that my gosh, we spent all this time worrying about you know, our deficits and how could this possibly be something that can actually happen? What do you say to those people?
2: We're already the richest and most advanced economy in the history of the world. We're at 21 trillion in GDP and counting. And most of the money that we're gonna put into our people's hands Will actually go right back into the economy towards daycare expenses and car repairs they've been putting off and local organizations. And that this trickle up economy will actually be enormously generative. It will create hundreds of thousands of new jobs, at least tens of thousands of new businesses, save us hundreds of billions on things like incarceration and emergency room health care and homelessness services, improve our human capital. It was a prison guard in New Hampshire told me that we should pay people to stay out of jail because we spend so much when they wind up in jail. There was one study that said that if you were to adopt this sort of plan, you would increase the size of our economy by $700 billion a year just on the basis of better health and education outcomes for our people. So you put this money into our hands the value stays right in our communities. Uh, I make a bunch of comparisons, a couple. Number one, does anyone here remember voting on the $4 trillion bailout of Wall Street? No. Does anyone remember anyone looking around being like, where are we gonna get the money? No. You know, so uh, on this one, we're, we're looking at a significantly smaller amount of money, particularly if you have this mechanism where we get our fair share of every Amazon sale and Google search and Facebook ad. What does a slice of AI end up meaning in terms of tax revenue? That could be an enormous number. That could be trillions of dollars in value. Uh, you know, there there are a few ways out of various situations, and your preferred way out is to grow your way out if you're an organization. The problem right now is that AI is going to displace a lot of American workers, and we're not going to see a dime of that value because the AI is going to be in the hands of the Amazons and Facebooks and Googles, trillion-dollar companies that literally pay zero or near zero in taxes. So the more work that their software and AI does, we're not going to see any of it. If you change that, then you can easily start being able to afford something like... The freedom dividend, particularly because we get the value back over and over again. The last thing I'll say about this is, have you ever heard a company issue a dividend and then be concerned about how the shareholders are going to spend it? Have you ever heard Verizon be like, we're going to issue this dividend, but we just want to make sure you spend it on the right things? <laughs> of course not. It's like, you know, Verizon shareholders, your money. So if we are truly a democracy, where the owners and stakeholders of this country. We can afford it, it's your money, you'll do something great with it, uh, and that's actually, in many ways, the most efficient use of resources. To me, one of the biggest opportunities we have is if you can imagine women and people of color all of a sudden having higher levels of resources throughout the community addressing problems that right now the market does not care about, like, that, that could be such an enormous improvement to our way of life. I, like, having seen what I've seen, I'm now convinced that women entrepreneurs are the the biggest untapped resource in our society. And I can imagine many more women starting not just companies, but organizations that would help solve the real problems of our time.
0: Universal basic income has been a popular idea on the campaign trail. What's not to like about a thousand bucks dropping into your bank account each month? But the program would cost US taxpayers about $3 trillion per year, roughly three quarters of the entire current federal budget. How can we ever pay for it? Andrew Yang has a plan for that.
1: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.
0: Andrew Yang has an upbeat way about him. But he paints a pretty bleak picture of where our country is headed. As automation makes jobs disappear, people are going to suffer. That will lead to more stress, more substance abuse, and more social upheaval. He says universal basic income can go a long way towards easing the pain. But there's an elephant in the room, a $3 trillion elephant. Some economists say UBI will bankrupt the country. Where do you get that kind of money? Yang has a couple of ideas. The first is a value-added tax, or VAT. A value-added tax is different than a sales tax. It's levied on products at every point where value has been added, from extracting the raw materials to selling them to consumers. It's a way to make sure corporations pay their share.
2: If you look around the world, a lot of countries have looked up and said, hey, it's unacceptable for a trillion dollar company like Amazon to pay zero in taxes. So what they've done is they've had a value-added tax in place, which then gives you a toll from every Amazon sale and Facebook ad, etc. And the great thing about a value-added tax, one, it, it'll generate a lot of money in an economy like America's because there's so much value flowing. Uh, but you can also ramp it up a little bit on things like yachts and luxury watches, and then you can ratchet it down or even exempt things like diapers and uh, toilet paper and milk, if you had even a mild value added tax in our economy, it would generate eight hundred billion a year minimum and rising quickly because anytime you have uh, some new innovation, then it would add to that so the headline cost of this thing is actually closer to something like um, two point four trillion so then post value added tax it gets you down to the one point five or so rufus i see but the the beauty of it is then you get an additional uh, four or five hundred billion back in new economic growth because the money would flow through your businesses and uh, create uh, about eight to ten percent of growth in the economy. And then you save several hundred billion on your emergency room health care and incarceration and homeless nurse services that we're spending up to a trillion on now. And then you make your people better educated, healthier, mentally healthier, more productive, better decision makers. Uh, it's kind of amazing.
0: And the value added tax would be, I think you said before, a European average is something like 20%, and you, you have in mind more like 10%, is that right? Yeah,
2: I'd set a scale of 10, and then again, ratchet it up on certain luxury goods, and then down on consumer staples. $800 billion is based on 10%. But the main element is we're actually going to put the money into your hands, uh, and so if you get $12,000 a year, you have to consume an awful lot for like some mild price increase to eat up 12000 a year.
0: I love the dichotomy of how, when you ask people how they would spend an extra $1,000 a month, they say, Well, I would, you know, I'd, I think I'd take, I'd take some more e courses and I do this and I do that. And then, what do you think of UBI? Well, I'm really worried that people wouldn't spend the money
2: well. It's just human nature, man. It's like, of course, you'll do great things with it, but like, what about those other people? Like, that's just the way we think.
0: My family has been going up to the mountains of Maine for many generations, and there's a town up there that has been hit in the way that all these towns and these areas have been hit. And there's a guy who runs the local Texaco station, nicest guy in the world. And I always think when I go by to get some gas, that it's, it's got to be tough for him. And if you look, if you look under under the little uh, crack in his garage, you see this garden of metal, um, extraordinary sculptures made out of scrap metal, out of car parts. Right? They're like. Ostriches and flowers and clowns on bicycles and I asked him if I could see it and he opened it up for me And it's literally like this beautiful garden made out of scrap metal and I thought you know how little I know Living in New York City of all the creative energy that exists in people around the country and it makes me feel like there are Scrap metal gardens all across this country waiting to blossom.
2: I agree with you completely I looked at at every single Incidents when people started getting this kind of money, and the findings were staggeringly consistent, no matter where you were, where consistently mental health improved, relationships improved, stress levels went down, hospital visits go down. If you had a kid, the kid graduated from high school at higher levels, but their personalities even changed to become more conscientious and agreeable. One of the things that my campaign's been doing, I'm very proud to say, is we've given a 1000 bucks a month to maybe... Uh, 14 or 15 families around the country, in part so that you can take what's an abstract argument and then humanize it. So if you're in New Hampshire, which I'm, I have spent a lot of time in New Hampshire, uh, but if you're in New Hampshire and that you hear about this thousand bucks a month, you're like, oh, wow, like, you know that, that's uh, interesting or it will never happen or whatever. But then you're just like, hey, look at the Fassie family. They live in Goughstown. They get a thousand bucks a month. What do they do with it? They repaired their cars, they, you know, they took a little bit extra time after the dad lost his job. And then you realize how ridiculous it is to think that $1,000 a month is going to hurt you. You know what I mean? It's like, well, it didn't hurt them, it wouldn't hurt you. <laughs> it's like, it's actually kind of awesome. Uh, and so seeing it in real life myself over the last number of months has only affirmed what every study has shown, that it's really good for humanity.
0: Tell us about data as a property right.
2: A study just came out that said that our data is now worth more than oil. How many of you got your data check in the mail last month? We laugh. Where did the data checks go if it's so valuable? Amazon, Facebook, Google, and the rest of the major tech companies that have been using our data for years. And I I agreed to it just like you all did. Like, none of us actually read the I agree and consent form. You just clicked on it and then hoped for the best. Uh, And it seemed like it was free. So you're like, how bad could this be? It's free. Uh, and it turns out that there are hidden costs associated with it. You could say they're the economic costs because now they're profiting to the tune of tens of billions of dollars. If they generate economic value, then we deserve a share of that. And we have to have the ability to turn it off if we so desire. So effectively,
0: Facebook and Google would say, "You know, thank you for the permission you have granted us to store your data, which you own, and we will pay you $27.30 a month. Depending upon what right we make of it, it, it we'll,
2: we'll pay you like a slice of it. We don't, actually might not even know what we're going to make uh, from it this year, but whatever we make, you're going to get uh, 30%, let's say.
0: And another part of your solution is to apply a value-added tax to digital ads to, as you say on your website, hasten a shift away from ad-driven business models.
2: I am very concerned, as a lot of Americans are, about the fact that, once again, the almighty marketplace is guiding the information that we get you see it most clearly in our cable news networks, where you have uh, Foxes say, "Hey, if we gin this up, like we'll make more money." And it turns out that people like the content more if it's not even trying to be objective. Uh, and you know, the same, unfortunately, I will say, is true in a different variant um, on the left. And and so you end up with a more polarized society because the information we consume is more polarizing because that's what the market incentives drive towards. And the question is, how can the government actually start trying to moderate some of the financial incentives that drive us in particular directions? And I I would say that trying to balance out the ad-driven advertising revenue model for a lot of these media companies would at least be a step in that direction.
0: The final question I would ask is, if something goes horribly wrong, and for totally irrational reasons, you are not elected president, what do you think the probability is that we figure this out?
2: What I say to people is I'm gonna be a parent and a patriot, win or lose. Uh, The problems aren't going away, I'm not going away. So I'll, I'll be doing everything I can to solve them, whether it's as your president or in some other capacity because we have to get our arms around these problems as quickly as possible. Thank you, Andrew Yang.
0: If you enjoyed this episode of The Next Big Idea, we know you are going to love The Next Big Idea Club, the community of lifelong learners that powers this podcast. You can sign up at nextbigideaclub.com where you can discuss these ideas with me and with many of the authors featured here. Enter promo code NORMAL and we'll send you a free copy of Andrew Yang's book, The War on Normal People, when you subscribe. That's nextbigideaclub.com, promo code NORMAL, N-O-R-M-A-L. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes and a link to the Next Big Idea Club and a link to our sponsors. Your support for them allows us to offer you this show for free. A special thanks today to Andrew Yang, His book, The War on Normal People, The Truth About America's Disappearing Jobs and Why Universal Basic Income Is Our Future is available wherever books are sold. And of course, at nextbigideaclub.com. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. This episode was written by Steve Chivers. Sound design is by Kyle Randall. Our associate producer is Caleb Bissinger. Series producers are Emma Cortland and Michael Kovnat. Our senior producer is Jonathan Miller. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louis, and Hernán López for Wondery.